1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is um, like a love story. It is the ultimate love story of you pursuing your bride, to hell and back, to have her, your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, hold that in our hearts as we think about this very um, sensitive, uh, beautiful, powerful area of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you heard referenced earlier, um, in the uh, service, we've been talking about what it means to be renewed by God, and this week we're going to talk about renewed sexuality. I have to tell you about a, a, a little uh, thing that happened before the service. When we give our children's bulletins, you know, we often have the title, and then we have an empty space and say, draw a picture of this theme. <laughs> And a couple of kids came up to me and said, Pastor Glenn, is this appropriate? Do you want us to... You don't have to draw any pictures this week, okay? Anyway, every now and then, right? Um, but you know we had to talk about this. You know we had to for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's something, it's a powerful part of our humanity, it's a powerful part of our humanity. Second of all, it has become more and more a public part of our humanity. Uh, you know, in the last 40 years, of course, but even more recently, for instance, through debates about gay marriage or transgender issues. I mean, it's just something that is in our culture regularly. But it's also something that's very personal to us. And, and I'll confess to you, that's what makes it hard 
because each one of you has your own story. Like I have my story and I don't know that story. I don't know if it's positive. I don't know if there's trauma. I don't, it's just a hard thing to talk about. In many ways, I wish you know, we could just do one-on-one meetings uh, in my office so I could learn more about you. One of my fears is that I would, that I would not hurt anybody. No, that's my heart uh, as we talk about this. It's a personal issue, but it's also an issue that has never been one that the Bible has shied away from. You find it in the book of God. The letter you just heard was a letter to a church. It's a public affair, and this is one of the things that sometimes the church has not done well. Sometimes uh, in my premarital counseling, often I'll say, how many of you actually talked regularly in your home about the gift of sexuality? And uh, maybe a couple people. You know, a lot of folks will say a book just appeared on our coffee table one day. And I, I think, you know, maybe an angel brought it. I don't know. It depends on what sort of, how good the book was. Uh, and I'm a little challenged here. I got a 30-minute sermon. And by the way, I want you to notice the clock is off the wall. That ought to scare you. Um, so I'm going to try to honor the fact it's off the wall. Is there any way to bring this volume down just a hair? Because I might get excited and start to start to... Scream, not too much, but just a little bit. Anyway, so this is something that we come together as God people without any shame, and we come to talk talk together as a community because we know this is part of our lives. And one of the wonderful things, although a, a short sermon can't cover it all or just a few passages, it can't represent all that the Bible has to say about this issue. Uh, And I want to mention to you, we have a fuller talk, The Bible and Sexuality, that we'll be running on our website that I did just about two years ago. So if you want to hear more, you can go there. But the great thing about it is that the Bible has lots to say about this issue. In fact, I think it's unrivaled in religious literature and even in our culture. It just hits every aspect of it. And so we have a lot that we can work with. Uh, This week, we're just looking at one passage And what I want to do is basically compare and contrast uh, what we hear from the world about sexuality and what the kingdom of God teaches us. That's the phrase that Paul used there. Just compare those two things together. And I want to do it looking at two different points. The first one is this. Uh, What the world tells us about sexuality is that it's appetite. What the kingdom of God tells us about sexuality is that it's intimacy. So it's appetite versus intimacy. Now, I probably don't have to make that appetite point uh, strenuously, right? You just could turn on the TV, any advertisement. Um, I came across a little uh, article on Business Insider, the website, and uh, it said this, even the most conservative of companies rely on sex to sell their products. It plays into one of our deepest human desires. As long as people desire to be attractive, desire romance, intimacy, advertisers show how their products help meet those desires. Products play a role in society's intimacy equation. Now, I'm going to take a little issue with the way that they uh, make intimacy and sex the same thing. But you see, it's this recognition, of course. Now, we would expect that maybe with health and beauty products, but we go, no, it goes way beyond that, right? Uh, Whether it's uh, selling hamburgers or motor oil or furniture. Uh, And what do we learn from that? Well, two things. One is we understand that uh, many times the world will use desires to trigger other desires. 
And that's what's going on there. But another one is this, that sexuality is thought of in our culture as basically just another hunger to be filled, just something else to be taken in and consumed. And it is not um, a modern idea, actually. It was alive in the church of Corinth. In, in verse 13, Paul is quoting one of their slogans. And one of the Corinthian slogans was, food, food is meant for the stomach, and stomach is meant for the food. And that basically means this. The body should be permitted to have anything it desires. That was the understanding they were working on. The body should be permitted to have anything it desires, meaning that desire is justification enough. And that's basically where we are in our day and time. Um, you know, many people would simply say, you know, my desire is present here, and isn't that just enough to fulfill it? Um, in fact, uh, you'll hear a spiritualized version of this where folks will say, well, didn't God give me this desire? If he gave me this desire, then shouldn't I act upon it? This is a common thing that we hear in our culture. The problem is we know that that's not the full story. We also know that we have over-desire. We talked about that a couple weeks. That's really what the word lust means in the Bible. It's to over-desire things. And we know that over-desire often leads to damage. Paul mentions... Uh, Several different activities that fall into this. Uh, one theologian says this list we get on the front end is really a list of grasping behavior, grabbing behavior. Someone that grabs and grasps for money will tend to be unethical in their business practices. He calls them a swindler. Someone that is grasping to escape will become a drunkard, an alcoholic. It's that sort of behavior. Well, how does it work out in sexuality? How it works out is we end up sexualizing everything and everyone. Now, I want you to imagine for a second uh, that you have a friend that really likes ketchup. And, uh, you know, you're used to this friend, you know, basically pulling out the ketchup. You serve a mistake, and they put it on the ketchup. You know, okay, yeah, yeah. Serve them eggs. Ketchup's going on the eggs. But you notice something's evolving. You're having an ice cream sundae with them. They put ketchup on it, you know. Or, or you're, you know, they take out a piece of chewing gum, and then they have a little travel ketchup thing, and they have to line a little bit on it to eat it. It's just growing more and more. At some point, you would say, what is this with you? You're over-ketchuping right? Well, I, I'm convinced if someone came from another planet and just observed the way we do sexuality, they would have the very same response. This is just a society that is obsessed with sexuality. You know, over-desire is what we're talking about here. And what happens, there's two things that sort of run behind it, and it was happening in the Corinthian community as well. And it was this view that... Uh, what I have in my mind and my desires, when I act on them, it really won't affect my body or my soul. It's dualism. It was Greek dualism. But there's modern dualism as well. It's the same idea that I've got these desires and ideals and I can act on them, but somehow my soul and my body won't be impacted by them. But we know that's not true. We know that over-desire, because we're unified people together we fall prey to this. And I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, that because of some medical issues in my life, you know, I, I recently had this encounter with my doctor where he just like shot straight with me. And it blew right through my idealism. 
I'm just sort of living in a way where I was going, yeah, you know, I can live this way and it's not going to impact me. And he brought my worlds together. I, let me bring your worlds together for a second. Just, you know, a couple facts. These are not religious claims, right? Here's one. To avoid sexually transmitted diseases, it's best to have one sex partner have relationship only with them. That's not from a Christian book. That's from the Mayo Clinic website. Or another one. The concept of safe sex is an oxymoron. Sex, when fully engaged in, is always risky. One passionate, spontaneous sex encounter changes the course of life, better or for worse. That's from psychology today, not from the Bible. And it even moves into this bigger issue in our culture about gender. Uh, maybe some of you saw the article a year ago by Dr. Paul uh, McHugh, and he was the psychiatrist, chief psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins, now he's the um, distinguished service professor there. And he wrote a provocative article about a year ago, appeared in the Wall Street Journal, but you can find it in other places, where he said transgender surgery isn't the solution. And he wrote it because he had seen years of the impact. For instance, that those that have a sexual reassignment surgery 20 times more higher to commit suicide or that 70 to 80% of the children that expressed those feelings grew out of them naturally. And so basically said, we don't do that surgery anymore, Johns Hopkins. And then he went even further to say that he felt it was a biological impossibility and it promoted mental disorder. Now again, I'm not giving you Christian apologetic here. I'm just saying we, we have to live in the world we're in. It's just for us to believe that my desires and acting on my desires is just an even-handed thing that won't affect me. It's a very dangerous thing. The Bible understands this. It's understood it forever. And it also harms relationships. Um, you know, now let me pause here. You know, there's so much positive I want to say and can say about the gift of sexuality. Please do not take this as the Bible's negative on sexuality. It is not. But as I said, sexuality is a powerful thing. Someone I know once said it's like nuclear power in humanity. I mean, there's no way to engage it without something major happening. And relationships are one of those places that this desire things comes, you know, to play. I mentioned I was with a group of pastors last week, and one of them uh, we were just, you know, sharing basically our year, and there's basically a married couple that I know, and he knows, and I was asking about them, and I knew that the husband had committed adultery and left the marriage, and I was asking how she was doing, asking how he was doing, and I said, give me some insight into this, and he said, well, I, I asked him about what the trigger was, and he said, well, I had an ex-girlfriend that had a divorce, and she asked if I would meet for coffee, and I said, okay, I'll meet with you to help work through it. And then he said, I felt a spark, so I thought I should investigate it. I mean, I think that is a great summary of sort of where things are today. I felt something. I felt a desire. Therefore, it must have been my true authentic self. And this is very much our belief about desire today, that my desire is my authentic true self. And if I act on that, I'll find my true self. What it resulted in was incredible damage not only to him, but to his family. And it goes along with this idea of the way our culture portrays sex, not only is sex equals appetite, but it equals happiness. 
couple weeks ago when I talked about the Bible, I mentioned this. Um, you know, what was interesting to me as the gay marriage debate was happening in our country was the conversation in the church. And I said, uh, hearing many Christians say, well, I don't know, shouldn't, don't people have a right to be happy? And that may be your opinion today. Don't, shouldn't people be happy? But there are so many assumptions under that, isn't there? Shouldn't people be happy? Well, along with that is another idea that it's cruel and crazy to require people to be chaste or celibate. And if you're a professing Christian here, I want to say to you that many, many Christians would disagree with you if that's your opinion. But two, I can mention are heavyweights, Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. They were both celibate men that had very full, satisfying lives and very joyful lives. And even married people can tell you. I mean, you know, it's not like married people are having sex 95% of the time, right? I mean, you're learning how to build friendship. Tim Keller would say that marriage is friendship spiked with romance. And it gets to a deeper thing here, and that is the unique Christian way that we understand the purpose of sex. If you understand what the Bible says, you understand this, that it's always within the covenant of marriage, but marriage is temporary. And our sexuality in that regard is temporary. And the destiny of God's children is to be married to him and to live as chaste brothers and sisters throughout eternity with God. I'll get back to that. But what I'm getting at is what I'm saying is the Bible tells you it is not essential. It is not essential to your happiness to have sexuality in your life. And I, that is modern heresy, right? That for you not to be sexually active is considered essential in our day and time. But what is it? How does the Bible look at it? Second thing, intimacy. The Bible understands sexuality as intimacy. Now, I, I chose this passage on purpose because we get some of the most intimate language here. And sometimes you can tell, is this passage talking about an earthly husband or wife, or is it talking about God and his people? You find some of the same language reflected from Genesis in the passage. But you heard this verse. You can look down and see it. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Then later, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see the logic there, Paul, don't you? That he's basically saying that the thing that goes before understanding our sexuality is intimacy with God. That is the fountainhead, intimacy with God. Unless you understand intimacy with God, you will never understand sexuality. You'll never fully understand it. The similar one flesh union between a man and a woman, we find this, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is so different from what we hear because what it's saying is that it is saying that your intimacy with God is the reality and sexuality is the shadow. Intimacy with the Lord is the reality. And our sexuality is actually, in many ways, an analog, a metaphor, a shadow of what God meant for us to be. I've mentioned before um, this exchange between a pastor and a woman he was counseling. I don't think I've ever read the quote. Um, and he was counseling a woman with a sexually broken past. And I want you to hear how he applied what I just said. At first, 
I had to settle for the details of her sex life because sex was the only language she knew for describing relationships of intimacy. At a later time, when she came to understand herself in relationship to the person of God, she then also learned the language of prayer. I mean, what an insightful thing about who we are spiritually, who we are physically. The Christian faith says that we had a breakup with our most significant lover, God. Sin caused a breakup where we turned from him. And sometimes, you know, after a breakup, you'll go looking anywhere to fill the hole. And that's what humanity has been doing. I mean, we do it lots of ways, right? There's umpteen manuals and umpteen articles and websites you could do. What I want to tell you this is the best manual on sex is the gospel. That's the best manual on sex out there. The way that God loves his people, the way he draws nears to his people, the way he comes and gives up all to have us. And actually, the best seminar you can attend, now hold on to your seats, is the Christian community. Living faithfully in the Christian community is the best seminar you could attend to understand what biblical sexuality is about. Because it introduces us to the family of God. I want you to listen to two other places uh, in the Bible. And I'm giving you these verses because I'm posing this question. If it's true that we live in a society, and all of us are affected by this, by a heightened, hypersexualized society, how do you get out of that? How do you grow out of that? It's very hard for us. Listen to these two verses. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes, Treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters in absolute purity. And then in the book of Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you control his body holy and honor. I mentioned that not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. There is so much just in that verse. We could stop and do a whole other sermon. Did you hear it? One, it's this idea that freedom is not just found in my opportunity to do whatever I want. True freedom is found in the ability to put myself on hold for my brother and sister. Not saying yes to my desires, but rather the ability to say no to my desires. That's true freedom. Another thing it mentions is just the dignity and honor that you and I have been made with. If we saw one another as God sees us in the likeness of God, we can never treat someone as an object. We can never just observe them as something that I would consume. More so, you see the tie, and then he said, those that have that mentality are ultimately those that don't know God. You don't know the intimacy, so that's why you're living that way. It even references that God is an avenger. God is jealous. I want to tell you something. God is jealous over your sexuality. For those of you that have experienced trauma, for those of you that have been taken advantage of, you need to know that your lover, God, is jealous over that. And he will avenge all wrongdoing. 
But lastly, we even hear this idea of transgressing our brother. It reminds us our culture, you know, is trying to work this out about consent. What is consent? Yes means yes, all these different things. But you know something? The Bible even takes us one higher. It says this, your obligation goes beyond consent because you can have someone consent and you can still take advantage of them. The Bible calls this as something greater. Even if someone consented and you don't think it would be good for their soul, you don't. This is this, I mean, it's just a different ethic. We're getting here in the Bible. And so as we come into the family of God, we learn something through all those verses, and that is sexuality is just one form of intimacy. It's like a river that has run out of its banks, and the whole place is flooded, but it's meant to be one bank, one river, amidst many rivers. And one of the reasons that we don't really understand this is because we don't understand spiritual friendship. You know, that's what's been lost in our society. The idea of deep, committed, spiritual friendship. And we're, we're going to have a class on that in two weeks that Bob Baldwin's going to speak at. And I really urge you. You know, Bob has thought more about this than I think many people in our community. I've learned so much from him. Now, I, I recently heard a, a comment by um, Rosaria Butterfield. And some of you may have heard of this woman. She got some press because it's sort of a Radical story, you know, here she is a post-modern feminist queer theory uh, tenured professor at Syracuse. And uh, she is also gay. And she has a conversion. She meets this pastor and his wife and they just invite her over for dinner and she becomes a Christian. And so now she goes around and lectures and she was recently in DC, I didn't get to see her, but someone who was there said, she said something very challenging. She said, you know something, uh, the gay community does community far better than the church does. She said, when I was in the gay community, we were with each other all the time. We were supporting one another. We had each other's backs. We, just, the church has sort of lost that. We just sort of go in and go out and go in and go out. Those of you that are trying to live chaste and celibate lives, I mean, you know how much you need that support. You know, sometimes we talk, you know, we have these little celebrations at the end of the service, celebrate, you know, baby goes up here and a marriage goes up here. And, you know, we don't want to just say, oh, gee, this is for the married folk. And we've been talking about what would that look like to celebrate? And I said, you know what I'd love to celebrate? Chastity. I would love to celebrate celibacy. I probably won't get any volunteers. I mean, talk about a heroic thing in our day and age, a radical thing in our day and age. But it also helps us understand how we view these sins here. You may have heard those sins, adultery. Maybe you heard you know, men that practice homosexuality. Your back went up and you thought, what? This is the Bible saying that stuff. With the backdrop I said, I want you now to look at the way these sins work through the lens of intimacy and family. Adultery. You've heard me maybe say this before, but you know what uh, the sign of the promise, the marriage vow, is in a marriage? It's not the ring. You can be married with a ring or not a ring. It's sex. The sexual relationship is the seal on the vow. That's why it would be that people would take the vow and then they would consummate the vow. And so when someone breaks the vow, they break the covenant and they break the intimacy. That's why adultery is a big deal. Intimacy has been broken. 
Or it mentions men who practice homosexuality. In Romans 1, it talks about women that practice homosexuality. And I, you know, I've said this before, and I just want to say it because there's been lots of writing and lots of, I would say, biblical gymnastics on the Bible. It's just simply the truth. From start to finish, you only find prohibition when it comes to same-sex relationship in the Bible. It's not the only prohibition, but you, know, the, you just need to hear that. And if you haven't, maybe you need to read that. But why? Is it just because God, you know, hates people that struggle with same-sex desire? Of course not. Every one of us in this room is sexually broken, including your pastor. Every one of us is sexually broken. Every one of us carries things in this lives that we wish we didn't have to carry. God uses them ingeniously to make us like his beloved son. It's part of sin that we battle with. But why this particular thing? Because as you heard, the idea of marriage is to become one. Unity and diversity come together. It's only in male-female marriage that you get unity and diversity, but also you have what's called the one-flesh union that occurs. And it's only in that relationship, male-female, that you have face-to-face sexuality. You see, it's the analog of what's happening with God. In his people. That's why. The marriage union provides that illustration. It provides that calling. And then he mentioned sexual immorality. That's more the general word that means any sort of sexuality outside of the covenant of marriage. And let me say this. The way the Bible understands sexuality is like a symphony. You know, it's a movement of things together. And so, you know, being sexually obedient isn't just holding off on the finale. You know what I'm talking about? It's this idea that I understand that this whole part of me flows together. And so to be chaste and obedient means say, God, I understand that you have called me, apart from marriage and the calling of marriage, to refrain from that. Because the music's going to get all messed up. It's going to get dissonant. It's going to get ugly. And I don't have to say this. Those of you that have had that story as part of your life and you were entered into a relationship Without the covenant, and it ended, it felt like a divorce, and it should have felt like a divorce to you. It ripped through your soul, and you're not crazy. And what happens if you keep doing that, you begin calcified and hardened. The good news is, is there's new life. I'm going to get to that at the end. I need to move really quick to the last point. The family backdrop also helps us understand the intimacy, those sins that we were talking about here. Because God, as he begins to do the work, we have new eyes. I've said this before, I think, that I'll tell you, I, you know, I grew up with no Christianity. I grew up as a, I'll save you my story. Let me just say, I was not healthy in this area. I, I go to church. I get part of this college group. We go on this retreat, and I hear the guys talking about women on the retreat, and I'm totally shocked by it. Why? Because they're honoring them in their words. I mean, I was just used for years when guys got together, the way he talked about women was to objectify him. I was like, what is this? It's in the family of God that you begin to go, well, you know, why don't I commit adultery? Because that is my sister. It's my neighbor. Why not same sex? Well, that is, that's my brother. That's my sister. It's a whole new lens that we begin to look at relationships. But it gets to this second point. The, the clock isn't there. It's a miracle. Um, I promise you, this will be shorter. The other way, the world sees sexuality as self-expression. The kingdom of God sees it as service. 
Self-expression versus service. Now, another Corinthian creed here, all things are lawful for me. That's what they would say. All things are lawful for me. We hear that echo in our culture. Freedom is my law. I have the law to self-expression. I could have said, you know, our culture sees sex in many ways. Sex is self-expression. Now sex is freedom. Now sex is justice. A right. I have a right to self, you know, sexual self-expression. And now the way it works is to say, and if you deny me that right, you deny me my identity and you deny me my personhood. So now our sexuality has become our whole personhood. This is how twisted and messed up we've got with this stuff. There was recently an article in the Washington Post and they surveyed millennials and asked, are you heterosexual or homosexual? And a third of them said, in between. And I thought, this is really an illustration of where we've been. Now my identity is basically who I think I am is based on my choice and my desire and nothing more. But again, we know that's not true. I mean, you know, you may have desires and a great choice to be playing in the World Series this week. You didn't get the call, did you? Why? Your nature limited you. Isn't nature unfair? Your nature limited you. Let's bring our worlds together. But where we see this really change is the way Christians understand sexuality with service. Look down with me. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Yes, not all are helpful. And I will not be enslaved by anything. There's a word play in the Greek where he says, I have liberty to do anything, but I will not let anything take liberties with me. In the book of Galatians, he would say, for you were called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for evil, for the flesh, but love and serve one another. This is the Christian understanding of sexuality. That it's not primarily about me exercising my freedom. There's a higher ethic here, love. And so when a husband and wife come together in their physical relationship, yes, there's wonderful pleasure that God has given us in sexuality, a wonderful gift, but that's not even the highest thing. They are to give one another a taste of Jesus Christ, a taste of the experience of the lover of God, the one that desired us deep in his heart, the one that, you know, loves us even uh, when we're not desirable, even when we're naked. He loves us completely holy who we are, the one that doesn't, you know, love and leave, the one that keeps his promise to the end, the one that says heaven will not be heaven to me unless we consummate spiritually. This is the God of the Christian, but maybe you've never understood that God is like this. He is your most jealous, passionate lover. And so sexuality always was supposed to mirror that and give broken people a taste of that. But not just that, because there's a wider purpose. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did God impregnate sex with the possibility of children? Why did he impregnate sex with the possibility of children? Because it's this example, it ain't just about us. It's not just about the individual. It's about community. It's about obligation. There's a cost now involved, right? The cost of life. Now, we found ways in science to mitigate that, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you get my point. It's something that's left out. So, in close, 
These are the two different ways, just two. I mean, we could have done more. Two different ways that there's just a radical different look at our sexuality as we renew it. Now, how do we take a couple steps towards that renewal? One is we have to understand that every one of us, as I said earlier, is broken. Every one of us is sexually broken. Every one of us is in need of redemption. And we need to begin to take that seriously. I'll tell you, sitcoms and jokes will make you not take it seriously. But come on, sitcoms are sitcoms. You've got to live with the aftermath. It's the Bible that dials in and says, this is an area that I need to dial up my sincerity and seriousness about. Verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Such a curious verse. Our culture says sex is skin deep. The Bible says it's soul deep. Counting the cost. And then there's this cost of fleeing and repenting. You see the words flee there and repent. Why? Because God knows what you're up against. And what we say, you know, there are, there are some things that are so powerful, you don't even get near them. If you understand the power of them, you stay 20 yards back. If you're a professing Christian here today, I want to challenge you about that. That you would settle for purity and obedience. And you would understand that your lover, God, will not let you rest until he has it. This is what he does. But he doesn't leave us by ourselves because he says this, I want to end where we begun. He said, and such were some of you. That's us. We are the some of you. We are that some of you congregation. This is us. This is our story. We can be honest about it. We have groups about this. I wish, you know, we have these groups. Probably 90% of our church needs to be in the group. We want to be freed up to say, this is me. I can tell my story. It's a safe place. But more so, he goes on to say, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the original Greek, there are buts between each one. He's saying, but you were washed, but you were justified, but you were sanctified. He's emphasizing it over and over Go, Don't forget that as you get connected to God through Jesus Christ, you're wearing the white wedding dress. As you get connected with the bridegroom who is holy and righteous through faith, you have a new beginning. The past is the past. It was. This is a new day. Cleansed, sanctified. That means the dominating power of it is broken. You don't have to keep doing the new old cycles. Don't let your mind tell you that. You've been justified where God legally says, guess what? This person is no longer guilty. They have no more shame in this area. This is how bold the Bible would go to. We need the gospel. We need the gospel of grace if we're going to renew ourselves in this area. And my friends, the sweetest news is that God is doing it and will do it. Because he just loves you too much. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us? You know us. You know our stories. Lord, I pray particularly for anybody in our room tonight that is feeling particular shame and guilt right now or condemnation. 
It's one thing to feel conviction, Lord, but it's another thing to feel like you've got no hope. I pray you would deliver them from that through the gospel. And for those that are struggling and battling every day and they're so weary, Lord, oh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them with the gospel by the power of your resurrection spirit. And for those that have tasted new life, I pray that they would want more and more. Oh, God, make us the bride you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen.